The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed in the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Archaeology is often viewed as a fascinating, eclectic, and ultimately quaint pursuit. This program explores archaeology from the perspective of professionals who demonstrate that in the 21st century, archaeology and its sub-disciplines may hold the key, not only to our past, but to our present and future. Welcome to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, with your host, Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Spend the next hour exploring where we came from and where we're headed with a leading researcher and practitioner in the field. Now, here is Dr. Schuldenrein. Hi there, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. Uh, today's program will be another in a series of programs that we have done on New York City uh, because this is certainly America's most complex and possibly, I suppose, arguably, most interesting metropolis, and certainly its most intricate. Uh, we have done a number of programs here. I'm based here, and I'm intimately familiar with what's going on in the city. Uh, we have had previous programs that have discussed the archaeological infrastructure, if you will, of the city, how projects get done. And today we're going to do something that's a little more, I suspect, exciting and of broader appeal to a lot of people and, and especially the, the greater public. We are going to be talking about slum dwellers and the real story of New York City's Five Points neighborhood. This is the uh, neighbor, neighborhood, the area of uh, lower Manhattan, in, in, in the borough of Manhattan, rather, that was popular, popularized by Martin Scorsese's film, The Gangs of New York. And the background to that area in terms of archaeology was in large measure investigated and reported on by my distinguished guest in this program, Dr. Rebecca Yeaman. Dr. Yeaman is a historical archaeologist who for the past 20 years has specialized in urban archaeology. She began her work uh, in archaeology in the federal courthouse in lower Manhattan, which was, as I said before, part of the notorious Five Points uh, neighborhood. She's also excavated extensively and analyzed sites in Brooklyn, New York, New Brunswick, New Jersey, and Wheeling, West Virginia, as well as Philadelphia, where she has been based for uh, at least 20 years. Uh, Dr. Yeaman is a specialist in urban settings, and she has used narrative approaches to interpret, uh, interpreting archaeological results, which is really kind of a creative and sort of very enthusiastic kind of approach to archaeology, and I'm sure she's going to be expounding on that uh, approach as we uh, proceed in, in this study. 
in this interview, rather, she has written a number of papers and books, including Landscape Archaeology, Reading and Interpreting the American Historical Landscape, and she's the author of Digging in the City of Brotherly Love, Stories from Philadelphia Archaeology. Dr. Yeaman once uh, has been involved, rather, in a variety of archaeological venues in her professional career. She's been an academic, she's been involved with museums, and spent a long part of her career working in the private sector with a company called John Milner Associates. She's currently an independent scholar, and she is writing a book on, of all things, the archaeology of prostitution. Uh, Dr. Yeaman holds a BA degree in anthropology from the University of Pennsylvania, and obtained her master's and doctoral degrees from New York University. It is my great pleasure to welcome my very good friend, Dr. Becky Yeaman. Becky, thanks for being here. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, let's get started with uh, with the five points area. Uh, why don't you give us a little bit of background on the area itself, the rise of its popularity, and how your project actually got off the ground? Well, you've already called it a slum, which of course you know makes me uncomfortable because I want to call it a working class neighborhood. I think. What's fanta- what was fantastic about this project is we got to see a place that had been talked about a lot from the outside, but we got to look inside, because after all, as historical archaeologists, we got to look at people's trash. And what we were able to learn from the trash was very different than all those images that have made Five Points so famous. So the images are colorful and irresistible, and I know everybody loves them. And when I first came to the project, the first thing I had to do and the first thing that was pointed out to me was that I should get familiar with this whole um, presentation of this wildly interesting and supposedly evil, um, you know, den of iniquity, this, this place that was so... Infamous, and so some of the most famous texts are are um, Asbury's book *Gangs of New York*, on which Scorsese, of course, or, or it inspired Scorsese's movie. And Asbury was a terrific writer, and it's no wonder, you know, everybody likes to think of Five Points the way Asbury thought of it, which was full of these gangs who were dressed in these crazy costumes, the plug uglies with their huge hats, and the dead rabbits with dead rabbit on a pole and the shirt tails with their shirt tails hanging out. We don't really know anything. You know, no scholar has really studied those gangs, but Asbury made them seem very real, but not really believable because among them were characters that couldn't be real, like Mose, who is eight feet tall. And one of the curious things is that people love to accept Asbury's portrait of Five Points. And to accept it, you have to sort of ignore what are obviously mythic figures. Beyond Asbury, we had Charles Dickens come to Five Points with a police escort in the 1840s, and then he wrote wonderful descriptions. Of course, he could write so well that his words are very memorable. So it's just been portrayed from the outside and the excavation allowed us to look at it from the inside. 
So, so it really is sort of one of those situations which we encounter very frequently in archaeology, where the myth is is so much more prominent. And once you get down to the reality, you kind of understand where the myth emerges from. But by and large, there's a way to reconstruct what actually happened, and I suspect that that's what you were addressing. Oh well, I don't know if we can, uh, you know, uh, reconstruct what actually happened, but we can re- we can see into people's households rather than looking at the vibrant scene in the street, which is portrayed in that very famous image of the lithograph of Paradise, Paradise Square, where there are prostitutes hanging out of the windows and pigs snorting around in the street and people drunk and people fighting. Right. So instead of that, we of course can see the you know the 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 mundane activities of people's households. So it's it's hard to burst the myth because the myth is so much sexier than the mundane artifacts that we actually um, analyzed. Right. Right, but uh, what, what, what was your approach going into the project? How, and for, tell us uh, exactly how the project started, because sure. I know it was excavated and there was a big time, time lag between the actual excavation and, and the analysis, which ultimately produces most of the results. Why don't you give us a little bit, bit of background well, on that? Well, okay, I wasn't involved in the excavation. The excavation was done by Historic Conservation and Interpretation, which was a firm headed up by Ed Rutch, the wonderful industrial archaeologist, and Len Bianchi um, directed the work in the field. And I didn't come get involved until John Milner Associates was hired to do the research design and the analysis. When so was when that? When I came to the project, I, number one, didn't know anything about Five Points because I hadn't read Herbert Asbury, and I hadn't, right. hadn't grown up in New York, so I didn't know anything about the myth. And I... Um, walked into the laboratory where the artifacts were already being analyzed. The laboratory, incidentally, was in the U.S. Customs House of the World Trade Center. And um, I walked into the laboratory, and, you know, I had all of these great images of plug uglies and all that stuff in my head, and laid out on the tables were, you know, just Staffordshire teawares and teacups and uh, sets of tumblers, glasses, and you know, all sorts of dishes and sewing materials and, you know, all sorts of stuff, which is the stuff of life. And uh, we didn't know what, to do, what it meant. I mean, we thought, basically, our first thoughts and the first paper we gave it a professional meaning was we must not be at five points, so we better <laughs> investigate where five points really is. So when people right. are talking about this myth, we better be sure that the collection that we're looking at really came from people who really lived there. And so, indeed, we found that the block that was excavated, which is between Worth and Pearl Streets, uh, right to the east of Foley Square, and that block was actually abutted Paradise Square, that big area that there's the famous image of where everybody is, um, you know, cavorting in the street. But in terms, I just want to set the chronology uh, sure. straight. When was the excavation actually done? The excavation was done in 1991. And lasted? We, we developed, I think it was done within a year. I mean, even though that firm was handling the excavation of the African burial ground at the same time. So, wow. you know, and they, both projects were projects being done by the General Services Administration. 
they were building an office building on the site that turned out to be the African burial ground and a federal courthouse on the site that turned out to be Five Points. So they had a lot to uh, worry about and to pay for, happily. <laughs> right. So and, the exhibition was done in 91. I came on in 92. We developed research design. And then, you know, the analysis was done over a six-year period in the 1990s. And you, you said basically that you walked in kind of in the middle of it or in the early phases no, of I, it? just when they had started to wash the artifacts and, you know, put them out on the tables to dry. And so you just got this impression of a lot of stuff. So it didn't look like in, an impoverished neighborhood. It looked like a neighborhood where people were consumers, where they had plenty of stuff. And the food, food remains were particularly um, rich and interesting. So all these things came out of individual privies, which had been on 14 lots. I guess I didn't explain about the site. The site covered 14 different historic lots. So the materials from each of those lots were kept separately, obviously, and most of the artifacts came out of privies that had been covered by later basement floors. So there were buildings that were facing uh, Pearl Street, historically, and then they had a backyard, and they would have had a privy in the backyard. And that eventually got covered up, filled up with artifacts, and then a larger tenement was built on, on the lot, which covered up the whole lot, including the former backyard. So most of the privies from which we analyzed artifacts had been what we say, what we call truncated. They'd been cut off at the top. The bottoms that were full of artifacts were sealed under these basement floors, which were taken up during the excavation process. And then, of course, you could analyze the artifacts that were in the bottoms of those privies. So the privies were really like uh, intact time capsules, if you will. They are intact time capsules. Once you figure out, you know, you, you analyze the fill inside the privy stratigraphically, and sometimes there's more than one stratum, and then you date each of those strata and then connect them to the people who were living on the lot when the trash was thrown in the privy. So then you can really look at artifacts in relation to actual people, and the people, of course, you find out about through the census records, minimal amount that you can find out, and the director, the city directories, and any tax records, anything else that you can possibly use to identify um, specific groups of artifacts, assemblages. And we will be back with our very special guest, Dr. Rebecca Yeaman, discussing the archaeology of the Five Points area right after these words. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. 
Each week, Jimmy Gould brings you the stories and the people that you want to hear about. Tune in to A Current Life to hear about the journey to success, how our guests became the people they are today, and the highs and lows they experienced along the way. Each hour will leave you inspired and entertained as Jimmy gets up close and personal with every week's guest and shares ideas you can identify with and apply to your own life. A Current Life with Jimmy Gould airs Fridays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Listening to Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to joseph.schuldenrein at gra goarc.com. Now, back to the program. This is Joe Schuldenrein, and I'm back with my guest, uh, Dr. Rebecca Yeaman, who was the principal archaeologist who excavated the uh, the um, Five Points area, Five Points neighborhood. Um, and she didn't actually excavate; she actually a- analyzed the results of the Five Points uh, excavations, to be more specific. And we've been talking about the ability of archaeologists who have tr- excellent archival records and information on property lots and census information, and their ability to actually connect the dots, meaning that they're actually able to connect families and social structures, if you will, to archaeological findings on particular pieces of property, and Dr. Yeaman was telling us that there were 14 lots that they uh, actually examined in the Five Points neighborhood, and we are going to start getting into what she was able to find about the individual families or property owners. So, uh, Becky, pick us up again sure. uh, from, that, from that point onward. Sure. Well, one of the great things is we talked before about these famous images of the Five Points that sort of make it look like the notorious slum that has the reputation of being. So that, that famous lithograph of Paradise Square, which shows the prostitutes hanging out of the windows and the pigs snorting in the street, is supposed to be dating to 1827. Well, it turns out that we had a privy belonging to Tobias and Margaret Hoffman, which dated to that general period, so that we could, you know, we, we knew we could actually see the things that people who lived there at that time were using in their homes. And so the Hoffmans had this very beautiful porcelain uh, that they must have set their tables with, and they had they came from a German background, and they had etched glasses in the German style, quite elegant. There was a porcelain pipe, which is a German style smoking pipe that we presume Tobias Hoffman um, smoked. He was a baker. And there were also redware dishes that were very scratched up that probably had to do with the bakery. But what was fascinating about that is they came in the 1790s to the block that was excavated. And when they came to the block, the collect pond was still very close by. And it was extremely polluted and very noxious and unpleasant. And citizens were were objecting to its condition and eventually it got filled. 
Tell and us a little bit about that, just as an aside, sure, so people sure. get some context. So the Collect Pond, originally the area that became Five Points was outside the Palisade that went from one side of Manhattan to the other, and things that weren't acceptable were outside the Palisade, were north of the Palisade. And one of those things was the Collect Pond, where tanneries were uh, were located and slaughterhouses and... Um, rope walks and things that were spewing their noxious, you know, waste fumes, yeah. into the pond and fumes into the pond, exactly. And the African burial ground was on one side of the collect pond, and then this air, this this industrial neighborhood was on the other. And it's that industrial neighborhood where Five Points grew up, and uh, Five Points actually also included. Once they filled the pond, which they did by about 1815, I think, they yes. laid out streets over the filled pond, and that's one of the reasons it was swampy and unpleasant, and actually built houses on top of where the collect pond had been. But when the Hoffmans were there in the, you know, the, the early decades of the 19th century, they would have been setting their table with this beautiful porcelain, but they would have been smelling all of these you know, noxious fumes from the waste that was collecting on the pond, by the pond, which was right down the street from their house. So that just fascinated me. It fascinated me to just think about what life was like. And they had children and they had animals in the backyard and they had, you know, they, they raised chickens. So they were just living a respectable domestic life under horrible conditions. And that's really the story of Five Points. So when people condemned the neighborhood as being this horrible place and the population as being depraved, um, they were looking at, indeed, horrible sanitation and, you know, horrible overcrowding and all sorts of things, but they didn't see how people were dealing with living in those circumstances. So the Hoffmans are one example. Moving down Pearl Street, we get to the Goldbergs, and the Goldbergs lived there in the 1830s and 40s, and that's the period that um, Herbert Asbury was talking about, when all the gangs are supposed to be rampant, right? So when we look at the gold, with the Goldberg um, collection, which came out of one of these privies, was particularly fascinating because it included two sets of everyday dishes. So, you know, I was looking at the two sets of everyday dishes and thinking, two sets of everyday dishes, that's very odd. Most households had a set of everyday dishes and a set of, you know, fancy dishes for Sunday dinner, but not two sets of everyday dishes. So, and their name was Goldberg. So and they there, also had a, a dead, lot of um, giveaway, right? seals from, well, you know, but it's not confirmed, not just because you had suspect. And there, there were seals right. from olive oil bottles. Right. And there were, you know, it just fast. And then there were these... Um, these, oh, oh gosh, I can't remember what they're called, but they had Hebrew letters on them. So indeed, it suggested that this was definitely a Jewish household, and one wondered whether it was a kosher household. So when I was doing this analysis, basically looking at all of the artifact descriptions, I was very excited, and I ran out of my office and ran to the person who was doing the faunal analysis and said, well, let's look at the bones. Let's see if they're consistent with keeping kosher. And indeed, to a great extent, they were. There were no, there were a lot of beef bones, and they only came from the front part of the animal, because the back part of the animal wasn't considered kosher. So the consistency of these things and fitting them together was so fascinating, and that 
that Goldberg household. And it turns out that there is a book on the early Jewish community in New York by a man named Grinstein. I think Hiram, though I'm not absolutely certain. But we looked in that book. Uh, it was published in the 1920s, and it actually mentioned Harris Goldberg and the fact that they had, they had a Polish Jewish congregation, and they met in his house, which is the house from which we had looked at the artifacts, um, for a certain amount of time until they were able to establish a synagogue uh, nearby. So it's just fantastic when you can bring all these strands of information together and contrast it with these colorful, um, you know, portraits of the neighborhood. So, we're, you know, it, when Asbury is, is making everybody sound like a criminal and a gang member, and we're looking at the Goldbergs who were, you know, setting, having Friday night dinner. They had rabbinical students, or they had boarders who were young men, so we suspected they were rabbinical students. So we could get a whole picture of this household, which was very different than the mythic image of what's supposed to go on at Five Points. Any idea as to why he did that and why the literary accounts are so different from the reality, given the fact that he was writing it at about the time when uh, these families were living there? Well, Asbury wasn't writing at that time. He, he was writing that book is oh, in 1927, and he was using, um, he doesn't give you his sources, but he was ah, presumably okay. using the yellow journalism of the day. So the newspapers were exaggerate, were writing these exaggerating descriptions, uh, exaggerated descriptions of this neighborhood, I think because people were scared. I mean, they were scared. You know, all of these new kinds of people were moving into New York, and they were people who spoke different languages and had different customs. And, you know, there were free blacks in this neighborhood, and sometimes there were free blacks and whites in, in the same household, and middle-class people. And uh, people were, you know, they just didn't know what to make of this new population. And so I think that um, the newspapers of the day, you know, took advantage of people's interest in things that are racy, and, and, and New Yorkers love it. To this day, they love it. You know, there's sort, still of like books. A, sort of like a New York Post of its day, huh? Absolutely. There are still books being written, uh, you know, about five points uh, with that image, and no matter how we try, you know, or no matter how much we think they should talk about the Goldbergs and the Hoffmans, it's not as, as fun as uh, talking about, uh, you know, an eight-foot-high uh, tall giant who is blowing chips into the harbor with a puff on his cigar. So, you know, we're always fighting against that. But but I guess the, the image that... that, that uh, most of us has picked up, and again, most most people are picking up this imagery, especially today from uh, from the Scorsese film. Uh, we are assuming, or we're reading, that the dominant culture in the area was the Irish working class. That's right. So the next privy up the street is uh, belong. Well, it was actually a huge festival that belonged to an Irish tenement. So we talk about that. Yeah. Yes, of course. Yeah. Okay, so the Irish tenement, in fact, the Irish tenement was really on the same lot as the Goldbergs had lived on because they moved away. And the tenement was built in 1848 to receive, you know, all these Irish people who were coming from Ireland. And it housed about 100 individuals, and uh, only two of whom were German. And the Germans were keeping a tobacco shop on the, the 
bottom floor. It was a five-story tenement. Uh, the apartments were probably two rooms, so it would have been pretty crowded. Many people had borders. But interestingly enough, uh, you know, even though we have this idea about Irish having huge families, they didn't. They had small families. Women didn't have babies until they were older. And um, they would, you know, have two children maybe and two boarders. And so, but there would be boarders in the households. It must have been very overcrowded and very difficult. And certainly the backyard was a, a fairly unpleasant place. It was this huge cesspool, which had maybe 100,000 artifacts in it. And they were divided into two very distinct strata. So that the lowest strata dated to about 1850. And then it was, there was a whole layer of sand that separated it from the upper strata, which was about 1870. So we got to look at the domestic debris from Irish who were living there in, you know, the 1850s. And then we got to look at domestic debris of, of different um, Irish immigrants who were living there in the 1870s, or in most cases they were different immigrants because people did move a lot. So that was particular, you know, maybe the most surprising of all, because of course these are the people that had the reputation for populating this neighborhood, and they had sets of dishes, you know, edgeware dishes, which are were popular among the middle class as well as as the working class. They had, um, you know, platters to serve food on, so that you could. Imagine a perfectly uh, respectable dinner being served even in an overcrowded two-room apartment. Uh, they had oh, Staffordshire figurines, like the famous dog figurine, and there were cops with children's names on them, so attention was being paid to children and providing them with things that they would would sort of teach them about their own individuality. There were uh, flower pots, that would have decorated the apartments as well as those those figurines. And, of course, our prize artifact was this cup with the image of um, Father Matthew on it. And Father Matthew was a Catholic crusader from Ireland for the temperance movement. And it's, it's an amazing little teacup that's not been used, so there are no scratch marks in the, in the inside. So you think that it was probably on the mantle, a decorative item reminding the Irish of temperance efforts, and there were also, uh, which is fantastic, I mean, it's so different than what you would have assumed would have been the case in these Irish households. A lot of um, soda water bottles, which were a substitute for alcohol, and then the food remains were terrific because, you know, the Irish had come in a fairly impoverished state, and in in America, they could really eat well, and that certainly showed in the food remains, so that there was lots of pork, which was the favorite of the Irish, and instead of fish, which would have been infinitely cheaper. So that was quite an inf- you know an insight to know that their they could spend their resources, no matter how limited they might have been, on buying meat because it was such a prized thing, and you know they seemed to be serving their families pretty decent meals. And we will be back with our special guest, Dr. Rebecca Amen, and delve a little bit more deeply into the Irish working class neighborhood that it was the five points after these messages.
the Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Join us for Cruise Views, an exciting behind-the-scenes look into what makes your cruise vacation tick, as well as the guests, crew, and industry experts that are the sailing force behind some of the world's top cruise offerings. Cruise Views with Ken Muscat, brought to you by MSC Cruises, will help you make the most of your travel budget. Find out more about the -the state-of-the-art cruise ships sailing the high seas and get the inside scoop on the latest innovations and destinations. Ken will also feature surprises, including weekly giveaways and more. Join us Fridays at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Variety. Come back to your senses. Imagine a radio show that will help you recover your common sense. Host Leah Brenda Smith is a health and wellness specialist who will explain techniques designed to help you recover from the stress of your life. It's all about how you respond to your thoughts. A little bit of self-awareness can go a long way in helping you to relax and enjoy your life. Tune in to Come Back to Your Senses Radio, live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your questions. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to joseph.schuldenrein at gra-goarc.com. Now, back to the program. This is Joe Schuldenrein, and we're back with our guest, Dr. Rebecca Yeaman, discussing the emergence of the legendary Five Points neighborhood in, in lower Manhattan in New York City. And Dr. Yeaman was chronicling the population changes and the ability of archaeology to chronicle that information, uh, specifically here relating to some of the early immigrant groups in the earlier part of the 19th century, specifically Germans and Jews. That were subsequently, or at least in stages, displaced by the Irish, who had moved in there by the uh, late, late, latter, mid to latter 19th century. And I would just parenthetically add that that uh, extensive documentation that we have, and which Dr. Yeaman will be expounding upon on the uh, the Irish occup- Irish working class population. In the five points, uh, specifically after 1870, is something that that we, our firm, is currently working on with Dr. Yeaman's assistance uh, on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. So we're starting to see a fair amount of information, get a lot of archaeological documentation of the expanding uh, signature, if you want to call it that, of the Irish in the mid to latter 19th century. So, uh, Becky, tell us a little bit about uh, when the Irish move in, what happens, and what are you picking up from the archaeological record of the, uh, uh, say, the mid-19th century onward? Well, one of the interesting things is that tenement was built by somebody named Peter McLaughlin, who was an Irishman who was working with the Emigrant Society who had come you know, some years before the 1840 
um, in, influx of people. So it was, you know, it was all Irish. He was an Irish business businessman who was um, serving the interests of his own community, which is terrific. So one of the really interesting things that we could look at, because we had these two strata of material in the cesspool, was changes from the 1850s to the 1870s. And it turned out that in the 1870s, you know, the residents were upgrading their uh, ceramic purchases, and so they had what was fashionable, which were plain white wares, rather than the the decorated materials that they had generally had um, in the earlier period. So they were keeping up with the fashion. So it was nice to be able to see an indication of that, that they were... um, you know, adapting to the styles and participating in in the wider culture. I mean, it was just, it was very much, uh, and yet maintaining their own identity. So, for instance, one of the wa- ways we saw an identity was, and this is going to surprise you a bit, is that these, the Kalen pipes, were all plain, and they didn't have either Irish imagery on them or um, patriotic imagery, decoration, because those Uh pipes get decorated. And so we thought, well, why is it that they're plain? And it turns out that around the corner on Baxter Street, which we also had features associated with people who lived on Baxter Street, who tended to be from Eastern Europe, um, the, the peop- those people had kaolin pipes that had a lot of patriotic imagery, like American eagles and stars on them and things like that. So one of the members of our team, Paul Reckner, asked himself, well, why is this true? You know, why do the Irish have plain pipes and the Germans have um, these patriotic pipes? And he figured out that the German tailors who lived on Baxter Street might well have been involved in the labor movement and were identifying with nativists rather than nativists and were tended to be anti-Irish. There was a lot of conflict between various groups, um, probably over work and, over, and just because of various prejudices. So it was interesting that it should you know, be expressed in this way. So even though with the Irish, we aren't looking at anything that's specifically Irish on those pipes, but because we can compare them with with differently decorated pipes associated with a different group, we can see that people are even expressing themselves through, you know, their smoking paraphernalia. And remember, Tobias Hopfen had his porcelain pipe, which is, of course, German. So but tell me... Tell me on that regard, how, what are you picking up from the archaeological record that reflects on how these ethnic groups got along? Uh, you're mentioning labor issues, probably jealousies in terms of rising in, in the, into uh, vertical rising or v- vertical succession in the socioeconomic mm-hmm. situation of mm-hmm. 19th century New York. What are we seeing? What is archaeology telling us about how these, these various ethnic groups got along and, and who edged out and how did that work and what the dynamic was internally? Well, I don't know if we can really tell that from the archaeology, but no, but to some said, degree, it shows I mean, you that there's conflict and competition between groups. Uh, let's see if I can think of something. Um, the Irish in the tenement, anyway, were laborers, but they were also skilled. Skilled, you know, there were some tailors, there were seamstresses, there were carpenters, and things like that. 
and, and they seem to be spending their resources on consumer goods to a greater degree than the German tail, the Eastern Europeans around the, on the other side of the block, who were saving their money to move out of the neighborhood, or we assume to move out of the neighborhood. Right. So there's a different, you know, approach to life, um, a, a different approach to how they were adapting. And of course, the Irish were controlled to a huge degree by Tammany and the Democratic Party that wanted to buy their votes. And, you know, you see that there were saloons along Pearl Street where I'm sure a lot of that happened. In fact, we had one saloon which was next door to that Irish tenement. There was also another tenement on the, the lot where the Hoffmans had lived. And um, in that saloon, there were, we, one of the finds was these ink bottles. They're master ink bottles. They're tall bottles that have pouring spouts that would have had a lot of ink in them, and then you would have poured the ink into smaller bottles. So why would you find those associated with a saloon? Probably because a lot of politicking was going on in the saloon. A lot of let, people were looking for jobs. People were signing up for, you know, various things and being... Um, so saloons were not just drinking places. They were these communal places where lots of activities took place. So that was, because we found those bottles, that's what made us look at that kind of activity and realize it was happening. Yeah, and I, I think that's one of the um, more fascinating elements of archaeology generally is to sort of uh, link the artifacts to the function of structures and, and that sort of thing. And yeah. uh, in terms of commercial establishments on those 14 lots as opposed to residencies, mm -hmm. what are you finding? What kind of uh, commercial venues did they have? And, well, and, there's saloons all along Pearl Street. Um, and then on, on the Baxter Street side, there were really many tailor shops and shoe shops. It was kind of the first garment uh, district in New York. So by the 1830s, it was lined with those shops, and people were speaking strange languages, German. You know, this is another reason. that, And that, even that side of the block was even closer to Paradise Square, the, the big open area that has such a reputation. So, you know, that was certainly contributing to the myth of the strangeness of the people who lived in this neighborhood. However, those tailors were doing very well. It seems that according to, I think, Elizabeth Blackmore, who wrote a wonderful book called um, Manhattan for Rent, I think this came from her, where she said that uh, the tailors and the prostitutes did the best of any of the businesses in mid-19th century New York. So... Our tailors would have been doing well, and we actually did have a brothel among the tailors on uh, on that street. And in terms of, as you were saying, I mean, all these different ethnic groups being so clustered together, mm -hmm. um, that was clearly, I don't know if it was a recipe for conflict, but it might have been certainly also a, 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 a recipe for interaction and, and, uh, and positive developments. Are we getting any information on that? Is there enough there, or were you able to expand that archaeological information to the written records and get some information not on that? Real. I mean, not, not really, but... But, of course, this is just like New York. I mean, you know, one side of the of block is, is one yes. thing. One, thing one side of the block is one thing. One side of the block is the other thing. And, obviously, people are interacting to the extent that they interact. I mean, I think in certain blocks in New York, people don't know each other from one side of the block to the other. And, you know, and like groups do cluster together. So it, 
you know, I called one of my publications Becoming New York because I thought that this neighborhood really um, epitomizes how the city developed uh, in this way where it's so dynamic and so multi-ethnic and so um, vibrant in, in ways that other cities aren't. I mean, and, you know, this, this is a, a beginning to that process. Yeah, and, and it's true. I mean, even if you look at New York today, I mean, you'll see that as various populations move in and move out, I think possibly, and, and this is something I've noticed, you know, I'm an immigrant myself, is that um, the commercial establishments are generally the last ones to go. Uh-huh. and and that the the uh, demographic change is heralded initially by the movement of of simple populations and yet commercial establishments linger on and then the new newly migrated individuals or population sectors actually get used to for example let's say the german tailors that yeah. that's who does the tailor and then all of a sudden you know you take another generation and of course then the commercial establishments move out as well and you're saying there's precedent to that obviously in five points yeah yeah. One of the things we did, we, you know, we hoped to find people who had some connection to the neighborhood, but we didn't find any people who had connection. We did interview a woman who lived a couple of blocks away, and her husband, who had been deceased for a long time, had lived on the actual block. And she came from an Irish background, and she lived, she was in her 80s, and she was still in a four-story walk-up. And her sons, who of course were professionals in the suburbs, had insisted she have plumbing installed inside her apartment, which she hadn't thought was necessary at all. And she didn't, um, she sort of relished memory of when, you know, Irish from Cork lived on one block and Irish from another part of Ireland lived on another block. So her memory was of, you know, was very positive, not negative about this neighborhood. And we, you know, we think that she is kind of the kind of person that would have been in our neighborhood. That's right. So you actually do have some kind of a living connection where you could sort of confirm in some ways the trends that you're picking up archaeologically and confirming historically as well. Well, Yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. uh, I was just going to say that there are fantastic social histories that we, of course, drew a lot on. I mean, there's a wonderful book, City of Women, by Christine Stansel, which we read, and Richard Stott's... um, workers in the metropolis. So, you know, the social historians have done a lot of work on this period, but even some of them came to visit us in the lab, and seeing the material record is different than what they construct from the primary documents that they deal with. So, you know, it was very enriching to be able to interact with them and to read their books, and we were very lucky to have their books to read. And I want to get back to that topic when we uh, get into our next segment. We'll be back after these words. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com Tune in every week for Impact Africa with host Tope Fajanbasi. Get ready to be inspired by the people, stories, and opportunities in Africa. We're a community of Africans and friends of Africa living all over the world. Together, we'll celebrate the continent's successes and help provide solutions to some of its greatest challenges. Impact Africa can be heard every Thursday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, 4 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Together, we'll discover that the real Africa is more than what you hear about. 
Conservation starts with us. Learn about environmental concerns each week when you tune in to Our Wild World with host Ellie Weiss. Our show centers on Africa each week and what's being done to save our wildlife, ecology, and ourselves. However, we'll also discuss what's going on closer to home. And most importantly, we'll let you know what can be done in our own backyards by featuring guest experts and featuring your questions and answers. Listen every Monday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Listening to Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to joseph.schuldenrein at gra goarc.com. Now, back to the program. This is Joe Schuldenrein, and we're back with our final and fascinating discussion with Dr. Rebecca Yeaman on the uh, Five Points neighborhood in Lower Manhattan in New York City, the uh, area that was immortalized, if you will, for, for contemporary audiences by Martin Scorsese's film Gangs of New York. And we've been talking about the unique ability and the unique potential that archaeology has to actually link reality and debunk it from myth as it were as obviously there's a lot of myth and there's a lot of glamorization if you will in these films and and in these uh these uh, doc- not documentaries but certainly in these uh reconstructed scenarios that are portrayed in movies and books etc cetera, etc cetera. And, and Dr. Yeaman is kind of sort of debunking these things by uh, actually getting us to look at what actually daily life was like in many of, in, in this neighborhood in particular, and it holds certainly for other neighborhoods. And, and I want to ask you, Becky, uh, as as we move into this last section, what what was your main revelation, or what was what was the most impressive uh, discovery or? conclusion that that you came to once you had actually completed this project and as you were moving along to uh to meld all this information that's really steeped in reality versus uh, how it's portrayed well i think we've already touched on it and that is of course how the huge contrast between the reality and the myth and i you know i I always wanted Martin Scorsese to show up for one of my lectures during the project, or Luke Sante, who also wrote a book called uh, Low Life that was kind of a rewrite of the Gangs of New York book, so that we could we could engage in a conversation about, you know, what do they think about this um, insider's portrait of the neighborhood compared to how they've written about it. And, you know, Scorsese, there's a very interesting in his uh DVD of the movie, there's a walk that he does through the set, and he talks about making the movie, and he talks about how he wasn't trying to portray reality. He was trying to just 
recreate early New York and make a story and make a movie that looked a little like Fellini. And he really says that. <laughs> Whereas when the movie came out, and he made it in Italy, you know, he rebuilt the set in Rome. Really? And uh, he built a set that represented this part of New York, and many of the images are based on these historic images. Um, but it, the, the public wanted it to be real. And New York, New Yorkers want all of this mythic stuff to be real. They want that to be the past of their city. And, you know, I don't really understand why they're so adamant about it, why you have to be this, have this exciting past, maybe as an antidote to most people's lives. I, I mean, you just, you, you sort of don't know, but certainly, the most interesting thing about the Five Points Project is that we have all this colorful literature and then we also have these very convincing records of what life really was happened. like yeah. on the inside. And it's so different. It's so different than what was being portrayed from the outside. So that's fascinating. And we know from other scholars who've worked around the world that this is a problem everywhere with working class districts from this period. Um, there's a wonderful historian named Alan Maine, who's an Australian, who wrote a book called The Imagined Slum. And he compares slums in England and in San Francisco and in Sydney, Australia, and he shows how Dickens' description of five points can be used for all of those other places too and because all of all of those places were kind of reduced to this imagined thing that was called the slum and um when you look at these places from the inside they're different they're not all the same they're different and archaeology has been done in Sydney, Australia, very extensive work and it's been fun to compare notes with those scholars because we can see how we're fighting the same thing. There's this big myth and then you have what you get from the archaeology. And people are, are, are not as interested in the archaeology as they are in the myth and uh, it's, that fascinates me. It fascinates and it, it, me. And it brings up an interesting topic. Then, how do we make it so? How do, how we, change do we make that? it so? How do we change that image? I well, mean, I'm glad you asked me that question at this last minute because, of course, when I wrote up this project, I thought, how can I, how can I beat this? And so I wrote these narrative vignettes. So I interweave everything I learn about one of these domestic scenes, like the Goldbergs or the Irish tenement or the Hoffmans, just those three examples that we've used, and I tell a little story because I thought these stories are so great that everybody knows, but how about the stories that we can make out of our domestic debris? And archaeologists love my stories. They love my, my vignettes, but they don't go anywhere. I, you know, they, they don't, the public isn't going to read them. It's just the way I could um, know what, I, what we had learned and make sense of it in terms of how people were really living, but it's not as dram it's not dramatic. It's mundane. It's it's you know, it's the, the dull stuff of everyday life, which is very important and it's what we can learn from archaeology, but it's not uh gonna excite anybody too much. Except that, you know, it does excite them a little bit when they see it and they actually when they see it. 
Yeah, they see the they see the residua. They see the artifacts. They look at maps, and and I think well, not everybody. Certainly, not everybody's fascinated by maps or anything like that. Mm-hmm. But but certainly, when they look at housewares, when they look at at domestic implements and, and, and reconstructions even of, of 19th century rooms and beds and furnishings. There is a fascination with mm-hmm. that, I think. Mm-hmm. I, I, and, and I think, you know, if we can find a way to sort of transmit that as, as sort of a signature element of, of what one's own heritage is, then I think people are going to start maybe getting more enthusiastic. And that's one of the things we're trying to do with this program is to sort of, in many ways, debunk myth, debunk Indiana Jones and, and say, well, let's really find out. Let's find out what really happened. Mm-hmm. And I think that the work that you've done certainly mm-hmm. moves very much in that direction because if nothing else, it's a very thorough accounting of what was there and a very realistic baseline for reconstructing landscapes and people and how they interact with each other. Well, that's and absolutely s- true, but the myth makes it interesting. I, mean, I know. It's the contrast that makes it really interesting. So we have so to do- exploit the myths as right. well as debunk them. And, uh, you know, that I think is, is one of our challenges. I think it's useful to have these myths because we could, of course, have this contrasting material. Yeah, I, you know, the myth as a hook to sort it's of bring hook. people up. Yeah, it's to bring people There's in. There's no question about it, no question about it. And really, that that's sort of where it goes. And and I think that once we get people absorbed into that and they say, well, is it really true? Well, you know what? Mm-hmm. There is something to it. But by and large, it, we, could, we chronicle what people did on a day-to-day basis. That's exactly and right. Yeah. That's what anthropology and archaeology is all about. And I think that's one of the missions that we want to present in this program. I want to... Very warmly thank my special guest, Dr. Rebecca Yeaman, who I will say I have tremendous amount of respect for, and, and we have, have and will continue to work together on projects here. And thank you so much, Becky, and thank you all for listening, and uh, we will be back next week. And it's good. been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me. Thanks again for tuning in to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Please join us for another unique journey into the past next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. In the meantime, think about the past with an eye towards the future and a better tomorrow. Tomorrow.